Oh, not so. So this afternoon we return to mudita, to empathetic joy. And once again, there are two approaches, just as with equanimity that we'll return to tomorrow. Kind of the Theravada approach, which I think is fantastic. Mahayana approach, which, you know me, I think it's fantastic. Uh, but for mudita, also two different approaches to it. In terms of the Theravada approach, based upon the Pali Canon, this mudita really is a cultivation of emotion. It, mudita simply means joy, taking delight. And so it is taking delight in what? And it's really others. There's really, I don't, I've not seen any reference in the Pali Canon and the Theravada, Theravada literature that mudita is taking delight in one's own virtues and so forth. That's perfectly good, but it's not part of the four immeasurables. So I've inserted that from the, Mahayana, from the Mahayana. But what it is is simply taking delight in others' joys, their successes, and their virtues. Just that. Okay? And of course, what, what does that do? It, it, it expands your heart. So, it's, so you care about not only your own joys, your own virtues, your own successes, but when somebody else has good fortune or any of the above, you actually care about it. And since it's something good, you care about it in a happy way, which is called rejoicing, taking delight, and that itself is a virtue. And you can see how if the nucleus, the nucleus, and my hand always does that, you know it's coming, the nucleus of kind of root delusion is this grasping under the self. The fist is such a great symbol for it. I don't know why, don't, why we don't have tankas with somebody. Maybe that's because the people in the tankas are always, in, always enlightened, so they're not showing, look, how deluded am I? You know? But that's such a mudra of just the problem, of the problem. It's coiled in upon itself. It's all gnarly on the outside. And it even if you, if you, you can start biting into your palm, if it gets too tight, you can even give yourself wounds. And so, but it, if, that's, if this is the nuclear problem, of this drawing in upon its oneself, the reified self, the autonomous self, the controlling self, the separate self, if that's the root problem, then you can see a simple practice, and it is so simple, of taking delight in others' joys, successes, virtues. What happens to that fist? It's just got to open. You know, I start caring, well then, that means, oh, I'm coming out of my skin, I'm coming out of I, me, mine. Oh, you, you are yours, you know. That's real too. I start attending to it, it becomes real. And when we're attending to it, I mean, really, just one of the easiest things is just watching children have a play and having and children's laughter, right? Children just having a ball. in something that's just good, no bullying, nothing bad. Just the kids are having a ball. They're laughing, they're giggling. The, ch the sound of children's, my, I, I know my own grandson. I mean, and all of us, isn't it true? I mean... The, the sound of a little three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old child, little boy or girl, doesn't matter, laughing, doesn't it just start make you smiling? You know, who, who, who can respond? It's not my kid. <laughs> I don't care. You'd have to be pretty, pretty, pretty gnarly, to, you know, to not care. It just, it just opens the heart. And so that's right there. It's right on the path to enlightenment, taking delight in little children having a great time, enjoying, playing, doing fun stuff. And so there's one spin on it, and you can see it's good. And you can see why, then, in the Theravada tradition, they refer to all four of these Brahma-viharas, the divine abidings, as all of these supporting, nurturing, sustaining your cultivation of the Samadhi-vipassana, or Shamatha and Vipassana, 
it softens it, it, it warms it up. It's, it's like a pre-act, you know, before the main event comes along, well, let's have Mudita. And Mudita gets the crowd really excited and happy and then comes the main event. So you can see they are really supplementary to each other, but the Mudita can really aid, assist, and abet the cultivation of Shamata Vipassana. So there's one spin, a very meaningful one, and it really is the cultivation of happiness by attending to things that are wonderful. Others' joys and their virtues. But in the Indo-Tibetan tradition, now in the Mahayana tradition, it's simply taking another, another spin, another approach to it. I wouldn't say either, either is better. I'm just glad I'm aware of both, because they both are, once again, complementary. And that is to, to remind you of the, the liturgy from the Tibetan or, or simply the short version would be May all sentient beings, may we all, never be parted from happiness and the causes of happiness. Happiness and the causes of happiness. Right? Or if we elaborated that, the full-fledged liturgy, Why couldn't we all never be parted from happiness and the causes of happiness. May I make it so that we're never parted from happiness and the causes of happiness. Or, may we never be parted, and then may I bring this about. May I cause it to make, make it happen that we are never parted from happiness and the causes of happiness, where it starts coming personal. Like, okay, I'm a player here. I'm not simply an observer. I'm not somebody just up there in the bandstand cheering people on. I'm glad you're happy. Yay. But rather participating. And maybe I can influence things here. Maybe I can contribute to helping others not be parted from happiness and the causes of happiness. So that's where, again, it turns into an aspiration. So in the Indo-Tibetan spin, approach, avenue, all four of the four immeasurables are aspirations. And the Theravada, not so. The third one is an emotion, taking delight. The fourth one is really establishing equanimity, just cool, equilibrium, calm, unperturbed. So they each has its own merits. But let's come back to this Mayan approach to the mudita, empathetic joy. May we never be parted from happiness and the causes of happiness. As I was reflecting upon that this afternoon, and even that is... It's more than I was really doing. I was just sitting there and stuff came up. Um, do you really want for anybody that no matter what happens, they, their response is, just be happy, smile. The, and, you know, another earthquake hit, just killed 100,000 people, demolished a whole city, tremendous suffering, and you hear about it. You'd look like some weir weirdly programmed robot, you know. And there are drugs like there was a movie done a long time ago about putting. A kind of, it was a, I think it was a microelectrode put in the in the brains of people, so all they had they could just turn it on, and they could auto stimulate themselves. And th all they had to do was I think it was a button or something. They just when they wanted to be happy, it was already implanted, and they just wanted to be happy. And, and that would do it. It would just hit the pleasure spot, you know. <laughs> and that would wear off. And, and what happened was, anybody see the movie? It was a long time ago. What's that? I can't remember. I just remember, I remember the, 
And what they would do after a while is they just kept hitting the button all the time. And then they just went crazy. They just went crazy. Blotto, you know. Because they're just always that, that, that hormone or whatever it was or the electric stimulation, it was just always and they got fried. That was, and that was the moral of the story. They just got fried. It was completely, completely meaningless bliss. I mean, this, this bliss had no significance at all. That's why I've never been interested, never, since I was 20, I've never, 21, never been interested in drugs. Because where's the meaning in that? You just tuck a drug and now you feel good. Who cares? It's just a drug effect. So I don't really want to be happy about that. I'd rather be happy about giving somebody directions or helping them, you know, tie their shoes. I mean, that's something we're happy be, ha be happy about. So, do, is this what really what we're wishing for? May all sentient beings just be going, hmm, never, ha never separated from happiness. You know, my, my, my parents just died. Too bad, I think, but I'm not quite sure. I wouldn't know, because I'm just too happy. That's just weird, right? So I think we're not, we're not wishing, may all, sentient being, being, may all sentient beings be totally weird. No matter what comes up, they just, with big happy smile, like that would just be creepy, like a really bad episode of Twilight Zone, right? So not that. But now when we come back, I mean, I have just a lot of confidence in the wisdom of these liturgies that have been around for hundreds of years and, the, and the, all, you know, the tradition in which they're embedded. So clearly that's not what Tsongkhaba and these other great people who are passing this on from generation, they're not suggesting may we all be happy zombies. So what kind of happiness would we be very happy for people never to be parted from? Genuine happiness. And of course, that's not just feeling zippity-doo-dah. It's not just feeling cheerful all the time. It's, you know what it is, that sense of well-being from living a, a meaningful, ethical, benevolent, wholesome way of life. Well, I, I would just be delighted if people were never separated from that. A tsunami hits, their parents die, their whole family is wiped out in an automobile accident. Whatever happens, tragedy, tears come, they are sad, but they have not lost that. A, a nest, a holder of, but my life still has meaning. This was a great tragedy, but I will bear it. I'll deal with it. I'm holding it. A person who, the Buddha himself, his whole clan was wiped out. It was a, a, retaliatory, a retaliatory strike by a neighboring kingdom. They had, his clan had tricked the other clan, somebody in it, and uh, became a retaliation. Retaliation was genocide. They came in and wiped out the whole clan. But he was a Buddha. So was he weeping and said, oh, my family got wiped out? No, but, you know. So there we are. So that all beings might, to envision all beings never being separated from the genuine happiness of ethics, of extraordinary mental balance. There's what we res with respond with to adversity, with mental balance, with the four immeasurables, with samadhi, with relaxation, stability, and clarity. And a full emotional life, it's just a wholesome emotional life. And then, of course, the genuine happiness arising from wisdom, from insight. And so that makes sense to me. That may all sentient beings, may we never be separated from genuine happiness of multiple levels, as deep as we can possibly go. But of course, the other side of that liturgy was may we never be separated from the causes of happiness. Well, I'll certainly go along with that. Certainly go along with that. 
virtue on all level, maybe never separated, no matter what happens, that we don't then just get separated from dharma, separated from virtue, and become immersed in a morass of mental afflictions and unwholesome conduct. So sure, absolutely, yes. It raises the final point that I think I'd like to raise this afternoon, and that is the difference between simply engaging in virtue and finding the path. And the word path is a very mighty four-letter word, uh, or five-letter word in Sanskrit, marga. Uh, it's a very powerful word. It's not casual. It's not a colloquial word. It's a very powerful word. Have you found the path? May I reach the path? Lam tropa. Lam tropa. Have you achieved, to say achieved path sounds re weird. Have you reached the path? And so Shantideva refers to this, of developing bodhicitta. He refers to all other virtues, for example. You recall this right in the first chapter. All other virtues, all kinds of virtues, writing a $1 billion check to alleviate poverty, uh, all kinds of stuff, really wonderful things we can do, and truly wonderful, excellent virtues of all kinds, body, speech, and mind. He speaks of whole, there's a whole wide array of virtues that religious and non-religious people, atheists and non-theists, polytheists and monotheists, and so forth, we can all engage in virtue. Animals engage in virtue. But he said, engaging in a virtue and then receiving the, you know, experiencing the consequences of that, the karmic maturation of the seeds from that, he says, it's all of these, all of these other virtues, he said, they're like a tree that's a, um, the, the, I, think it's a, a tree, I think it's a banana tree, but I'm not sure, that, but there's some trees or some plants, like, t I won't even try to give an example because I'm such a, not, a, not, such a non-gardener and farmer, but I'm certain there are plants and trees that they give fruit once and they die. They die, okay? Some plants, I mean wheat, for example, um, that's an obvious one, it gives it and then it, it's finished. And so all the, they give their fruit and then it's finished. And that's good, you got some nice fruit, but then it really is finished. There was the virtue, its repercussions, and then it's finished. And then he refers, refers to bodhicitta, this aspiration, especially when it's uncontrived, spontaneous, where it really, your mind has become bodhicitta. Talk about your mind becoming dharma. Your mind is bodhicitta. It doesn't have bodhicitta, your mind is bodhicitta. And it's so rooted, it's so spontaneous, it's so your mind, that all your other desires all other aspirations are simply derivative of that. So His Holiness commented that caring, he felt, was the fundamental impetus, the deepest core desire of all sentient beings. Well, that may or may not be benevolent. It could be sociopathic and still caring about oneself and not anybody else, but it's still caring. But imagine that caring got mutated over so as, as the root, the fundamental root of all aspirations. Caring got cultivated and that root became bodhicitta. And so that's your fundamental aspiration. Right there at caring, where caring was, bodhicitta is. Imagine that. So you get hungry, you want some food, good, that's derivative of bodhicitta. You want to get sleep, you want to get entertainment, you want to meditate, go, go on a 50-year retreat, you want to get married, you want to have kids, it's all derivative coming out of bodhicitta. He said, this is like a perennial tree. Develop bodhicitta to that depth. And it's like a tree that simply continues bearing fruit indefinitely. So this is what I'm referring to with path. And I'll keep this within Mahayana, just for the time being. We don't need to have a big Buddhism 101 lesson here. But within Mahayana, there are all kinds of virtues we can engage in. We can do one-month retreats. We can do eight-week retreats. We can go on three retreats. 
do all kinds of virtues in the world, generosity, we can become Dharma teachers, all kinds of things we can do. And they're all virtues, all good. But to a large extent, they are virtues exactly of what Shantideva referred to. They're virtues, they give their fruit, and then it's finished. Right? I've been teaching for a long time, and many people come to me and said, or they're writing applications to come to one of these retreats. I've seen that many times. And they said, um, I used to meditate a lot. There was a period about 13 years ago, I meditated a lot for about four years, and then I, I, I didn't do it for a while. But, but then seven years later, I tried it, and I, I did it for a year. I was really going, uh, then I stopped. Uh, and I'm doing 20 minutes a day, three times a week. Sometimes not. But sometimes I do an hour. Uh, and I'd really like to come to an eight-week retreat. So I say that with no sarcasm. That's people telling the fact, that's good. Tell the fact. And for some people, in and out, in and out. Mm, I try, but I want to give it another try. Good. It's better to give it another try than not give it another try. Um, I've known people who've done three-year three retreats. Some do a three-year retreat, and they just devote the whole rest of their life to Dharma. Lama Michael Conklin is a great example of that. What has he done since his three-year retreat besides do his best to serve the Dharma, serve other sentient beings? Pure motivation. So some people like that. Fantastic. Uh, Mingi Rinpoche did a three-year retreat when he was 13. Really, really young. What has he done since then? As far as I can tell, just 100% Dharma. Now he's going to do another three-year retreat. And I kind of expect what he's gonna, what's going to happen after that. It's going to be 100% Dharma all over again. That's great. That's really meaningful. I've known other people who do three-year retreats, and they kind of just drift away. You know? Or do a three-month Vipassana retreat, or do an eight-week retreat, a three-month retreat with me, with me, whatever. I'm not pointing directions, any, any pink finger in any direction. But something didn't happen. And that was, the path wasn't found. So if we look at this in, with a big panoramic vision, the Buddhist vision, that this is one in a sequence of lives, consciousness continues. In this lifetime, we've met with teachers, we've met with wonderful Sangha, and I know how our Sangha gathered today around one of our Dharma sisters. It was wonderful to know of. It made me so happy, so happy. Genuine Sangha, really caring for each other. That's, if you want to make, make me happy, boy, just do that. It's, it's ah, oh, then I, this is for, then this is really, this is Dharma, this is really good. Then I'm happy to be here. If, if I can contribute to that even one tiny bit, then this is Dharma. Excellent. Very, very good. So really, that was wonderful. So, big picture. If this is one in a sequence, we've encountered wonderful Sangha. Here, we've encountered a wonderful place to practice Dharma. Excellent teachings. We've all met with excellent teachers. Next lifetime? If we've just lived our lives in a continuous flow of Dharma, where it's like we really have led our lives so that we've given up attachment to this life and our minds have become Dharma, and it's just every day we wake up in the morning and the first thing is practicing Tonglen or whatever, but just wake up and Dharma has just begun, you know? And it's Dharma all the way through, and it's day after day, and it's just kind of like, that's, that's it. That's it. Then with that, there's 
there's a path in this life and good reason to believe with motivation, with dedication of merit and so forth, then why not in the next life that you'll once again encounter the circumstances, one or more qualified teachers, sangha, conducive environment and so forth and you can continue what you have begun in this lifetime or very likely begun in past lifetime. But the Mahayana tradition, and this goes back to the, some of the greatest classics in the whole Mahayana tradition, such as the Arisamaya Alankara by Maitreya, by way of Asanga, speaks of really reaching the path, not only developing some continuity in practice where you have a good chance of encountering Dharma in the next lifetime, and the next lifetime until you achieve enlightenment, but in fact, something very specific, and that is reaching the path and then getting to the point where you are so on the path, and I, and I, I noticed Jen, uh, Jennifer's look when I said get into the fast lane and you can't get off, because of course she's right. So once in a while the fast lane will just get you off on the, on the other side. So I think that the, the better metaphor would be stay in the middle lane. Just, the, just whatever the middle lane is, keep in the middle lane. Because a middle lane never gets veered off, because that's why it's called the middle lane, right? And then we have the middle way. But the notion that you can not only get onto the freeway, you can not only get onto the path, but you could so stabilize there that no matter what happens in this lifetime or any future lifetime, you won't be off the path. You won't be off the path. To know that, to have that confidence. That's achieving the path, reaching the path. And I have to say I'm a bit surprised how little this is emphasized when it comes to practice. Any good Kembo in the Kagyut Nyingma or Sakya tradition, or Geshe in the Gulupa or Sakya tradition, any one of these, all of them, they all know about this. The Mundo Gen, this great text by Maitreya. And it's based upon sutras, and there's so many commentaries and so forth. It's hardly hidden knowledge. It's really out there. I studied it. I memorized the whole text when I was 23. The whole bit, we all did. It was nothing special. We memorize it verbatim every night for about, a, oh, what, 40 minutes, an hour, we would recite. We'd recite one-third of the text every night together, all the monks together. And then three, three nights, and we'd, have, we'd recite the whole text. The next day, we start the next one, just keep it live. And we did that before we even began studying it. You memorize the full text verbatim first, and then you study the commentaries, you need to debate it, and all of that kind of business. So, I mean, that's how important this is for the tradition. I mean, really core. And what's the central piece? What's the central theme of this whole text? The five paths and the ten bumis. And then we come over to practice. How often do we hear of people nowadays saying, oh, this is a great lama, great lama living up there in Solokumbu, a fantastic lama over there in Sikkim. Oh, there's one up there in Leh, Ladakh. He's achieved the Mahayana path accumulation. Anybody ever hear that? You know? What was it, just for study? And then when we practice and we do three retreats or we do a lot of mantra or tumo or po or chu or stage regeneration practice and we just kind of forget like, weren't, was that not serious? Is that only for the old days? So I do find this is, this is why I broke up my training so much that I didn't simply continue. I never became a geshe, really wound up never really wanting to become one because I just couldn't see studying for 15, 20 years disengaged from practice. So that's why I've been flip-flopping like a fish ever since in study, then practice, study, practice, because I just figured I can die any time. And so, you know, let's not let the theory get too far advanced beyond the practice. 
So I'm being ultra-traditional here, ultra-conservative, to think maybe what Maitreya was teaching there of actually achieving irreversible bodhicitta, reaching the path so you'll never be off the path, might not be such a bad idea. Many of the greatest scholars and contemplatives of Tibet said, well, for that, of course, you want to have a serviceable mind so that the bodhicitta goes so deep that it's not a layer, it's the ground. Your mind has become bodhicitta. For that, you develop your bodhicitta. You develop your shamatha, achieve your shamatha, develop bodhicitta. And then you seal it when you reach this medium stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation with insight, with vipassana, with the four satipatthana, four applications of mindfulness. But frankly, it could be just vipassana, realization of emptiness, some degree. And it seals it. It seals your bodhicitta. So no matter what happens, there's a holocaust, your whole family is wiped out, whatever happens, you see the most awful things that human beings can ever do and you don't lose your bodhicitta. You don't say, ah, oh, screw it. I'm going to go off and achieve my own liberation. There's just something irreversible there. So I take this quite seriously. The fir first time I ever heard about it from Geshe Rapten. Geshe Ngaun Taige, no? In fact, Geshe Ngaun Taige, back in 1972. He taught me shamatha. Boy, that's stuck. And he taught me about the five paths, and I thought, whoa, that's really something. That's really worth it. And so, coming back to mudita, and then on this point we'll end. When we arouse the aspiration, may we all never be parted from genuine happiness and the causes of happiness. How is that possibly going to occur unless sentient beings achieve the path? Because achieving the path is that. You're never parted from the causes of happiness because your mind is never not bodhicitta. It doesn't mean that mental affliction will never arise again. That's not true. They can, bodhisattvas still have mental afflictions coming up once and, a, once and again, now and again. But you're never parted from the path. You're never parted from the causes of genuine happiness. You're never parted from the causes of enlightenment. Every lifetime will be meaningful. Every lifetime will be on the path. And maybe it will be two. Maybe you'll get it all ready this time and the next year, uh, the next lifetime, finish it off with practicing state regeneration and completion of Kala Chakra and finish. Maybe you'll achieve it this lifetime. Maybe it will be three or four lifetimes. But whether it's three or four or 30 or 40, not that important. What is enormously important is that it's three or four or 30 or 40 rather than just a little splash of virtue here and this little splash of virtue there as you're wandering around not knowing where the hell you are. So I remember speaking with, one, with one yogi years ago. He'd been practicing a long time. And he told me, and he was very candid with me. He said, yeah, I've been practicing a long time. I mean, really intense. He said, but I can't place myself anywhere in terms of five paths, ten bhumis, this, that. Yeah, the, a lot of practice, incredibly pure motivation. But he said, I can't place myself anywhere. And so, when I think of path, I think of how can this mind be transformed so deeply that it reaches the path, it gets onto the on-ramp of the great freeway, whether it's straight bodhisattva-yana, vajrayana, dzogchen, whatever it may be, there, and then it just gets in the middle way, and you can say, okay, now I'm on the path. And I'll always be on the path until I come to the culmination of the path to arouse that as mudita. May we all find the path, the path to our own liberation, 
to our own awakening, to our own f complete fulfillment. And we, may we never stray, never get derailed, never involuntarily get on an off-ramp and then wonder, uh-oh, where am I now? I don't know where I am now, it's just samsara. It's this ocean of samsara. But if we arouse that aspiration, may we all be never parted from genuine happiness and the causes of happiness, which means may we all find the path. We don't have to even achieve enlightenment, just find the path and you'll never be parted from happiness and the causes of happiness, right? Genuine happiness is still there, even on bad days. Genuine happiness, the ground is still there, the root is still there, the causes of genuine happiness still there. But for that to be realistic, may we all never be parted from genuine happiness and the causes of happiness. May I make it so, may I make it so that we are never parted. For that to arise and not be silly, then, of course, how are we going to lead other people to the middle lane of the great freeway if we're not on it ourselves? And so that's where it comes back. Say, okay, then I must do it. So this mudita can be quite rich. Yeah? More than just being happy about other people's being happy. That's good too. So let's start there and let's just see how deep we can go. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states, calming and soothing the mind with mindfulness of breathing for a little while.
classic teachings from the Theravada tradition, specifically from Buddha Gosa's Path of Purification, when first venturing into the meditative cultivation of empathetic joy, one brings to mind a person who just emanates a sense of good cheer. I think we all know such people who kind of light up a room, kind of a joyousness, a lightness, a buoyancy. vividly bring to mind such a person. Attend closely. And simply take delight in this person's joy. and the joy they very likely often share with others, lightening others' day. Let your attention rove, only lightly controlling it so that it doesn't simply wander off into distracting thoughts. But give, a loose, give your attention a looseness of freedom so to attend to others then, drawing from your memory, from the very recent past or more distant past, of people finding success, finding joy, Good fortune. And as they enjoy their well-being, their success, their fortune, share it with them. Let your heart join theirs in taking delight, taking delight in their well-being.
now attend to those, Buddhist or not Buddhist, religious or not religious. The issue here is not ones of organizations, institutions, or belief systems, but attend to those who are applying themselves to virtue. Bringing some goodness to the world by way of an ethical, wholesome, benevolent way of life. With the awareness this is the only hope for us as a human species to be able to survive and flourish is by treating each other with kindness. Attend closely and take delight in those who are sharing their goodness with the world of all kinds, parents to children, teachers to students, businessmen, all kinds of people. Attend to those who are devoting themselves with great dedication, purity of motivation, to cultivating the yet deeper sense of well-being, of genuine happiness, by cultivating their hearts and minds through the cultivation of samadhi. And there are so many different ways of doing so. but who are discovering for themselves how a sense of genuine well-being can flow from the very nature of their own awareness. Take delight in those, these great explorers of the inner dimensions of awareness. may 
if you wish, with each out-breath, breathe out this light of delight, rejoicing, appreciation. It may even be gratitude. An embrace of light. Attending closely to those who, with all of their passion, are focused on liberation, be it liberation for themselves, which is a noble aspiration, be it enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings, the most sublime of all aspirations, to those great beings of the past and the present. Breathe out this light of appreciation, of joy. That these people are turning themselves into beacons of light to guide the rest of us to our own fulfillment.
then if you will move this to a higher dimension, may we all never be parted from genuine happiness and the causes of such well-being. Arouse this with every out-breath and breathe out this aspiration of profound loving-kindness. all those seeking happiness discover and devote themselves to the causes of happiness. May all those who are devoting themselves to virtue reach the path those who reach the path, never stray from the path, but may they swiftly realize their highest aspirations. May we all swiftly realize our highest aspirations.
we make it so. moment just rest, awareness resting in its own place. I've not read any of these, just two. I've not read them first. I will, of course, read them. Um, But what I'd really like to focus on, I had a very helpful reminder uh, from one of you uh, that during this, I think, really quite valuable time that we have together each day, that we really focus primarily on the the practices. There are so many fascinating theoretical issues to address, to ponder, to wrestle with. But here we are in this pretty close to optimal environment for practicing. And so let's uh, prioritize, I shall prioritize, the practice, practice questions and also try to leave some time also for the ones that are a bit more, how do you say, contextual. Okay, here we go. When settling the mind in its natural state, one can observe two types of mental events, subjective and subjective. So I think everybody's clear uh, on what is meant by this. I've heard you say in a previous retreat that there is a hypothesis that's, that states that while there is a time lag between the appearance of a subjective mental event and the awareness of them, the appearance and the awareness of objective mental events are simultaneous. Does this mean that the mind is reflexive? What may be the implications of this? And where does this hypothesis come from? Very good, excellent, very well informed, and it really is, even though, yeah, it's, it's, it is pragmatic. Uh, it's, it's right there on the cusp between practice, practice, and theoretical. It's where view and meditation merge. Excellent question. Uh, yeah. First of all, let's take let's go step by step. And, I'll, and what I'm going to try to do also, I must say, I have to confess, when I responded to David's question, I, I was, it sounded a little bit like a doddering old man at times. Oh, I remember this little, oh, I'm four equations of Maxwell. That quite, wasn't quite what you asked, so I'm going to try to not dodder about so it's like some feeble-minded old man. You know, I'm approaching that, but I'm going to try to rein it in, try to be a bit more direct. So, objective mental events. The appearances actually arise. For example, in a dream. 
Well, as I'm attending, let's say, to the, to the color of, uh, of Alma's meditation cloak there, shawl, shawl. What I'm seeing there, the, the images that are arising are rising in part independent upon the photons emitted by that shawl, traveling for a very short time from her shawl to my, to my retina, which then sets up a very, uh, another very quick sequence of electrochemical events going through the optic nerve, culminating in the visual cortex. So inside the brain, that's got to be really short, but long compared to how long it took the photons to get from her, sh from her shawl to my eye. The simple point of raising that is that I am, as I'm just gazing at her shawl, I am seeing something that just took place a short time ago. Because, and this is most obvious when you're observing planets or stars, okay, that took a, photons. Um, oh, for, for this nearest Earth-like planet, about 20 years to get to us. It's 20 light years away. So the simple point here, when we're seeing something out in the objective world, the appearances are some, seeing something that took place a little while ago. We hear something. Well, we all know, we've all heard a gunshot, and then we, we, see, the, we see the smoke, and then a half second later we see it. That's a time lag between the event and our perception of it because it took some time for the sound waves or the photons to get to us. Unlike that, in the dream, there aren't any sound waves and there are no photons. So what you're seeing is exactly simultaneous. There's just no reason to think that, oh, there was the appearance there for 10 milliseconds, but nobody was aware of it. And then there's just no reason there would be any lag, no reason at all. And, so, and likewise, for the appearance, now I'm not talking about photons. When I gaze at Alma's shawl, the appearance of red and my perception of the red, they're simultaneous because the appearance didn't travel through time. So the appearance of red, but there's no awareness of it, doesn't make any sense. And an awareness that's... So whether it's the hearing and the sound that I hear, simultaneous. The color that I see and my perception of it, simultaneous. Even though the event itself may have taken place you know, some fraction of a second earlier. So I just see no reason at all, and I've never heard anybody suggest that there's any reason for there to be a time lag between your awareness of a mental appearance, like a dreamscape, like attending to and mentally hearing chit-chat, or a little flickering image that comes up, that there should be any time lag between the appearance and the awareness of it. If you think of any reason why there's a time lag, I'm all ears, but until that happens, I'm going to assume it's simultaneous. And that's very much in accordance with the Buddha Dharma in this regard. I've studied Buddhist psychology. I've seen no reason to doubt that. Now, in contrast to that, this is straight from Buddhist psychology, which is my primary reliance, but also secondarily, I must say very secondarily, it's also drawing from the writings of William James. Now, granted, he died 100 years ago, so there's much, much research since then, which is obviously far more contemporary, sharp, cutting edge, uh, but here's, but straight from Buddhism, and I think this will be, this is corroborated by William James, and I strongly suspect we have two experts here, Joachim and Heidi. If I say something wrong, feel at no bashfulness to say, I'm sorry, Alan, you're wrong on that point. I'm happy to hear that. Can I learn something? Um, but when I'm feeling a desire, for example, I'm desire for anything, okay, an apple, an apple. I want an apple. I'm really hungry. For, I want an apple. And I'm just sitting there, and then suddenly, oh, I wish I had an apple arises. So desire arises. It's a subjective impulse. It's not something that appears to me like an image of an apple. It's a subjective impulse. I really wish I had an apple. That desire has a referent. It has an object. And the object is apple. 
right? So that's what it's focused on. When that's, ex when that's arising, what my attention is focused on is the apple that I desire. 50 milliseconds later, with introspection, with the monitoring of the space of the mind and the events that arise therein, I may note, oh, a desire for an apple just arose. Quiz time, it just happened. When that occurs, right, you all know this from settling the mind, it's natural state, you've just, in that first instant, now you've just awakened to the fact, oh, a desire for an apple has just arisen. What is the object of your attention at that time? For the exactly right. That was the perfect articulation. The desire for the apple. That's what you're aware of. That's what you know. That's what you're focusing on. Well, now we come back to whoever, I think it might have been you, Jacob, um, who was asking, well, can we attend to two objects simultaneously? Yes, we can, but not to two entirely different fields. That is a Buddhist premise. Well, an apple is a physical object out there, and the desire for an apple is a mental event taking place in here. You can't attend to both of them simultaneously. In which case, moreover though, now consider this though, when you are aware of, and I'm, and I'm inviting you, you are experts in your own mind. Nobody has your perspective on your mind, not the br most brilliant neuroscientist, psychologist, behaviorist. You have privileged access. Consider from your own experience, because you've done a fair amount, all of you, at least for 24 minutes, you know, several times during our collective meditations, when you've just become aware of a desire for an apple has arisen, just when you get the taste of your own experience, in that moment, are you desiring an apple? I don't think so either. And it's not my experience. I've just noted, oh, a desire for an apple has arisen. In that moment, I'm not desiring an apple because I'm not thinking about apples, let alone whether I want one or not. I'm just observing, oh, desire for apple just arose. And so, this means that by the time the recognition, des desire, recognition of desire for apple has arisen, the desire for apple has passed. Because something else has come in. The desire for apple was, looking at the apple, the awareness of desire, desire for the apple is looking at the desire for the apple, but you can't have both simultaneously. So one supplanted the other, okay? And then you might lose your attention and say, and I really want an apple. Where can I find one? <laughs> and then you're no longer being aware of wanting an apple. You just, I really want an apple, you know? So your attention is focused on the referent of the desire. So this is Buddhist psychology. And so your, our awareness of subjective mental impulses, and I give two big ones, two big categories, and there may very well be more, but I'm confident about these two. Desire and emotion. Desire and emotion. Now, again, I could go on the whole time about this, and I think I would, uh, I'm going to try it again, at least I'm not rambling. Um, <laughs> I don't think so anyway. Emotions are sometimes, sometimes have a very specific referent, as we all know. Um, when we've learned that a, that a friend has just had an accident, and sadness arises, we're sad about something, and we're, the focus of attention is the friend and the, di the difficulty the friend is experiencing. Right? Then we may be aware of the sadness. And at that moment, we're not attending to the friend. We're attending to the sadness. The sadness just went by. Now, one may feel sad about one's own sadness, in which case the sadness can perpetuate. One may forget about the friend for three seconds, 
and just feel sad. Maybe about just sad feeding on sad. That can happen, right? And so whenever aware of an emotion, especially it's most obvious when it's an emotion about something that happened, someone, something, someplace, it's got a referent. The, when that emotion is arising, the object is that which is making us sad. And then we become aware of, the, of being sad. At that point, we've disengaged our attention from that which makes us sad. We're attending to the feeling itself, the emotion of sad, which means it's retrospective. Because we are feeling sad. So there's one. I just gave the example of the other one, a desire. Desire. So I say, I say in both cases, they are retrospective. They may be very short retrospective. You may be attending to a fee- an emotion, feeling, desire that occurred just a fraction of a second earlier but it's not real time. And this is the, the Bud- overall Buddhist premise, very strongly articulated, especially in Prasangaka, I think most clearly and with the greatest precision, is that a single moment of awareness is never taking itself as an object. It may be taking the immediately preceding moment, and, and that immediately preceding moment may be very similar. So I may be, now imagine, I'm just, I'm experiencing a general anxiety disorder, a phase, a period. I'm just feeling just overall anxious. And he say, Alan, what are you anxious about? I don't know, I just feel really uneasy, really on edge. I'm, I'm, I, I just really feel kind of rotten, and I'm, I feel uneasy. Or I just feel sad. Or I just feel really happy. What are you happy about? Nothing particular, I just feel really good. You know? and, and then you, recognize, you, you may be aware of the fact, I'm feeling really good. And I'm feeling really good about feeling good, because I like feeling good, therefore I feel good about feeling good. And I continue to feel good about feeling good, about feeling good, about feeling good, about feeling good. You know, it can roll, it can roll, it can feed itself as in awareness of awareness of awareness of awareness that doesn't have a strong affective coloration to it. So that's that. Does this, and, and does this mean this mind is reflexive? Not one single moment observing itself, but a single moment observing the immediate preceding? Yes, and I don't know any Buddhist school that refutes that. What are the implications? Enormous, but I'm going to give real short. The, just Dharma practice per se, but also this, this potentially enormously beneficial and meaningful interface between clinical psychology and Buddhist meditation and theory. Often the theory is overlooked. Too bad, because it's rich. But if you have a person who's suffering from depression, anxiety disorder, or other aberrations, could be psychosis, could be paranoia, what have you, any of these, and if it's not just wildly out of, out of control, in that moment, let's say paranoia, I'm just afraid those people over there, these, these people over here with that, that red monk there, you know, red, red robe monk, and up red, I'm afraid of red because it's a danger signal, and they're wearing red. That's probably a danger signal to me that they're about to attack. You know, Singaporean monks—they're tough. You know. And so I could be starting to develop some very irrational fear here, around, you know, ladies in red and monks in red, tough. You know, and starting to freak out about that. In the moment that I'm aware, ah, fearness is arising. And this is irrational fear. In the moment I'm aware, ah, fear is arising in my mind. In that moment, I'm not attending to the red fearful people, right? And if I'm not afraid of being afraid, then I've just cut it, cut the continuum, at least for a little while. And I'm not feeding that anymore. I'm aware, I'm aware I'm being, and then as I'm aware, 
I'm afraid. I might have a good spiritual friend or a therapist saying, Alan, good, you've just noticed you're afraid. Are you recognizing what you're afraid of? You know the nature of the fear. I'm on the road to healing. If I can be aware of the fear and then actually respond to the question, what are you afraid of? That's not a healing, but that's a step in the right direction. Rather than just, oh, no, more red people. You know, and just and you go into spin cycle. So the very awareness of an emotion, the very awareness of a desire. How about addictions? People who have problems with overeating, with, with nicotine, with alcohol, or what have you. As soon as you're aware, the craving is just ridden. In that moment, you're not craving it. You've just broken the continuity. Broken the continuity. And depression. Depression. If you can simply be observing the depression, you may already have found a little crack in the door to not be totally absorbed by it. So, yeah, I think, so I could go on a lot more, but I'm not going to. But I think the implications are very rich and settling the mind. I'm just waiting for a great explosion of research and so forth on the interface between very wise, meditatively savvy psychotherapy and settling the mind. I think there's enormous potential there. Good. This is a very good one. And, but I'd like to pause because I really am, am kind of missing a little bit the immediate verbal exchange. Any questions that, that, that pertain directly to the practices we've been doing recently? This is a good question and I will respond to it. But anything just utterly practical about this message we've been exploring? Go ahead, Nicola. We need a microphone. It's coming. I actually didn't I wanted to follow up on the first question a okay. little bit. So if somebody has a question that's about their actual practice, then go I'll for it. Wait. This would be a rounding off. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so you said I didn't understand what you said about the desire for the apple. And yeah. you didn't understand that. Well, I understood it, but you said that the apple itself is a physical object, and our awareness of the desire for the apple is is not. It's in the mental field. Mm. So that's why we can perceive them both. But when we are desiring an apple that's not out there, we're thinking about it, that yeah. it's in our mental field as well. So they're in the same mental what, field. Just, I, just, I just need clarity. What's in the mental field? The, so when we desire an apple, yeah. and that's we're not aware of it, that's in the mental field. I, I, just, I just didn't hear something. When, when you we desire, desire an apple, apple, right? Yes. And we're not aware of it. You're not aware of what? Well, oh, oh, you're not aware of the desire. Yes, you yes. just want an apple. Yes. Yeah. That's in the mental field. What's in the mental field? The desire. Yeah. Of course. Okay. All desires are in the mental field. Right. And then we're aware of the desire. That's also in the mental field. Yes, it is. So since they're in the same mental field, why can't we attend to both of them? Ah, you can attend to the des the desire for an apple, but a, but an apple is not in the mental field. And when you desire an apple, what you're attending to is an apple. You don't want an image of an apple. Uh, <laughs> no, they don't taste very good. <laughs> Images of apples are in the mental field. This, is, this, is, this has been the subtle and enormously important distinction in settling the mind in its natural state. And that is an image of, let's say, an, why don't I stay with the apple? You're just sitting there and suddenly apples are appearing in the space of your mind. If you're simply attending to them and they're rising, appearances of apples, appearances of apples, and you're attending to them without distraction, without grasping, you're doing the practice. As soon as you think, it's almost like 
apples. I like apples. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. Why don't they have more apples in Thailand? Somebody gave me an apple. Where on earth did it come from? I think it must have been imported on a 747 or something. But uh, you know, as soon as it goes to the referent of, the referent of the image, the referent of the thought, as soon as you're attending to apples, which are there and then, as opposed to the images which are always here and now. In that moment, you've slipped out of settling the mind in its natural state, and you've gone off to distraction, right? Okay. So that's the difference. The image of apple is in the space of the mind. The desire for apples is in the space of the mind. But unless you really want to have, and you might want to have, I would really like to just have images of apples. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I want to have images, mental images of the taste of apples. <laughs> I'm satisfied. You know, I got what I wanted already. That's one type of desire, but the desire for an apple is another kind of barrel of apples. Okay, so we go back to where the object actually resides, the, the one that we're trying to apples. go after. Apples are not in the space of the mind. See. Yeah. <laughs> so many <laughs> thoughts can arise in the mind indeed. What, we can? Many, many thoughts, images, and so forth can arise in the settling the mind, right? Absolutely. At the same time. Both the desires and the images. Of course. At, at the same time. At the same time. Sure. Okay. Sure. Okay. Definitely. Good. All right. Yes, Don. I haven't heard from you for a while. Uh, so my question is about uh, simultaneity, the same kind of along uh -huh. the same line that in working on awareness of awareness, right. you're talking about uh, that the mind can't simultaneously do both. That is, witness itself being aware. Uh, well, I'm just going to finesse the language there. And I'm speaking from, so you always know where I'm coming from, I'm speaking from the Prasankaka Madhyamaka perspective. Okay? Just so that's all mm -hmm. clear. Prasangika Madhyamaka perspective, this comes up in the ninth chapter of Shantideva's text, the Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. He explicitly addresses this. Uh, is that, to put the words more precisely though, a single moment of awareness does not take itself as its own object. It doesn't, it can't bifurcate and in the same moment and say, here's the subject, here's the object, and oh, howdy. You know, it can't do that. It may take a preceding moment of awareness as its object. It may attend to the future, some imaginary future, it can attend to anything, but it can't take itself, bifurcate itself, and say, howdy. Yeah? That's prasangika view. And here's, the, and, and here's how it unpacks a little bit more. This is within the realm of, realm of philosophy, realm of conventional reality, which is where we should be talking, is in any, in any act of cognition, there is that which is cognizing, there is the act of cognizing, the cognizing process itself. Well, to put it, I'm going to rephrase it. There's the agent. There is an agent. It's conventional. We're not talking about a reified, absolute subjective. But there's someone who's apprehending. There's the act of apprehending. That's the process. And there's an object of apprehension. Right? Now, there is no such thing in, of, of a, as an object of apprehension, an apprehended object. There is no such thing unless there is the process of apprehension taking place. But there's no apprehension without somebody apprehending. There needs to be an agent. But there's no agent who apprehends, with, who doesn't, there's no apprehender who is not in the process of apprehending. 
So each of three, these three is integral. Each of these things is, is, is as real as anything else. But none of them exists autonomously. Right? So they, these three all ex exist in mutual interdependence as a matrix. They all arise in, but it's not one comes first, one comes second. Okay? As there's no left without right, no up without down, there is no apprehended object without an apprehending subject, and neither of those exists without the event, the process, the experience of apprehension taking place. This is why I find John Wheeler's, this is going to be a brief tangent, and it will be very brief, but while John, John Wheeler's, again, one of the most brilliant theoretical physicists of the late 20th century, his whole theory of its from bits, that what is fundamental to the whole universe is not matter, which is the widespread assumption. It's not matter. It's not space, time, mass, energy. It's not that. It's information. And it's out of information that we human beings define space, as we understand it, time, as we understand it, matter, energy. But all of these concepts are coming out of information. No information, you got, you got nothing. And this is exactly the point that Stephen Hawking made now very, very recently. And that is what is primary is experience. And all of our theories are coming out of experience, right? Well, if this is case, I mean, what these, these brilliant minds are really venturing into is that, and they're aware of it. John Wheeler was explicitly aware of this. This means, look, if information is more fundamental than matter, more fundamental than space, time, matter, energy, he was aware there is no such thing as information without somebody who's informed, without somebody who is being informed, which means consciousness is as fundamental to the universe as anything else. That's, that's enormous. It's very much Yamaka. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I will go to John, and I think maybe over here also. We'll see. Uh, okay. The, but we're going for practical, right? Because yeah. I, I said I want to give priority to practical, and we just went up to quantum cosmology. <laughs> okay. Um, in... Uh, it's not a very well-formed question, but let me try to, okay. to explain it. It's, is how, in awareness, awareness, say, how do we lose awareness? When we go to sleep and we're in the substrate, mm -hmm. why are we not just aware, okay, now I'm collapsed in the substrate? Yeah. Uh, why, do, why don't we achieve shamatha by falling asleep? And a further comment to that is that sometimes when you are falling asleep, there's this collapse that you can start to feel. Yeah. And sometimes you can reverse it, and sometimes you mm -hmm. collapse into it. Mm -hmm. But there's definitely a little bit of a time there. And I, I did have one experience where I, I felt something happen, and I, all of a sudden I felt very different, very kind of light as a feather, sort of bubbly, mm -hmm. tingly, mm -hmm. uh, presence or, you know, that I was just sort of floating there as an awareness, and I didn't know what happened. I was observing it, and, and then finally I realized I was asleep. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. <coughs> well, it's great to get your own taste. Do you know that we're not just reading this all out of books? That's why we're spending six, seven, eight hours a day practicing, and not six, seven, eight hours a day talking, which we could do. Um, to answer the question, yeah, it's a very good question. Why don't we just achieve shamatha by falling asleep? I mean, come on. The mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness. That's what happens when you achieve shamatha. So what's the problem? And I think you're, you're right on the cusp of it. In fact, I think I'm, I'm going to tell you something you already know, and maybe just hopefully clarify it a little bit. And that is, as we all know, 
as we're falling asleep, we start to feel drowsy. And drowsiness is a rather coarse version of dullness. There's a so in terms of terminology, there's a laxity where you lose the edge. There's dullness where there is no edge, that it's just dull. And then there's sleepiness, and I think drowsiness is just a very nice word for it. We know, all know what it's like. Uh, it's drowsiness, and normally, when the drowsiness comes, then we just relax. Say, good, it's, it's 10 o'clock at night, or whatever it is, it's bedtime, I, I, I need my sleep, and this is just what I wanted to happen. I'm feeling really yawny, drowsy. And then we just slip into it, and the sword of our consciousness goes right into the sheath of the substrate. Uh, and that is, it just gets obscured. And what happens here, to answer your question now with very few words, when the drowsiness arises, there's a cognitive fusion of our awareness with the drowsiness, such that awareness, or I, become drowsy. Become drowsy. I am drowsy. I am fast asleep. There are parallels all over the place. And this is why settling the mind is such a marvelous practice, and it's incredibly deep practice. It's simple, but incredibly deep. And that is to be able to develop this spaciousness that is aware of events without being absorbed into them. The ramifications of this one are just astronomical. And that is to be aware, for example, that irritation is arising and not become irritated. Aware that a desire is arising and not simply desiring. And so forth. That one is aware of them, doesn't shirk them, doesn't cringe, doesn't recoil, doesn't repress, suppress, and so forth. Just aware, aware there it is. And maybe it's this, this millisecond, you know, little, several milliseconds lag time, but nevertheless, you didn't get sucked in, you know. And so if we can be developing this ability of this spaciousness, this is why I keep on coming back to relaxation and looseness and softness and lightness, that whatever's coming up, it's coming into a large space. Right? It doesn't just fill the space. I am so angry. I am so depressed. I am so happy. You know, that I'm just, I am Mr. Happy. I'm just, I'm one just happy guy all the way through. No part of me aware that I'm happy. I'm just happy, you know? Like, as if we've gotten drugged. As we can develop that meta-awareness, that larger space of awareness for, for desires, for chit-chat, for mental images and so forth, and not be just sucked into every doggone thing that comes along. Be aware of them. Then, number one, the, the value of this, of to be aware of mental afflictions when they arise and not get sucked into them. That's enormous. That's enormous. They almost, kind of, they're, they're quickly losing their status as mental afflictions. And why? Because they don't afflict the mind. And why? Because we're not grasping onto them. We've stopped being hookers. You know? They've come along the hook and we haven't gotten ourselves hooked. Said, no thanks, I'll just watch you. You know? Yeah. I'll just watch. <laughs> It does cost a lot less. <laughs> the wear and tear is a lot less. And so it, when we can imagine, though, as one develops the ability, you know, for these different types of emotions, desires, impulses, chit-chat, mental objects, and so forth and so on, as one just simply, it's a skill. It's something to familiarize, to habituate, to develop, develop the ability to be more and more aware of them without distraction, without grasping. Then there's the possibility. And you've already tasted it. So you know this is not just doctrine or am I trying to brainwash you that as you're falling asleep, 
you may be resting in that clarity, that spacious clarity, and then dullness arises, but you're not sucked up into it. And dullness arises so much, your mind falls to sleep, and your awareness didn't. Your body falls asleep. Your respiration goes into sleep cycle. The only thing that didn't fall asleep was awareness. And you've just slipped into, lo into lucid, dreamless sleep, which is primed then for lucid, dream for, for lucid dreaming. Now, the easiest access to that, this is hard to do, it's not impossible, it's a challenge, to not get sucked up into the dullness, but just be clearly, quietly, relaxed, aware. Dullness is sending, but not become engulfed in it. The easier way is to be in the midst of a lucid dream. One way or another, get entry to a lucid dream, and then make the deliberate decision within the lucid dream. I'm going to now let the dream vanish. And you may even just close your eyes. And of course, this is really easy to do. Once you're in a lucid dream, this is not hard to do. And that is, in the midst of a lucid dream, just close your eyes or leave them open, but just totally disengage, as if you're settling the mind in its natural state. And don't move and don't do anything. And within a matter of not many seconds, that whole dreamscape is going to fade out. And you, as the persona in the dream, is going to fade out. Or where it's fading out is fading in. It's dissolving the, all the dreamscape is dissolving into the substrate. And your dreaming mind, with its emotions, desires, sense of I am, all that's dissolving into the substrate, consciousness. But if, you've made, if you were lucid all the way through, then you'll go right from lucid dreaming to lucid dreamless. And that will not be the same as shamatha, but you are venturing into the same domain. You are getting an immediate experience, a knowing experience of the substrate and the substrate consciousness. The difference between that and shamatha is the magnitude of luminosity. Because all you're doing there is bringing the normal level of clarity to your lucid, dreamless experience, which is great. But of course, the path of shamatha is developing and developing relaxation, stability, and vividness way up. That's the difference. Okay? Good. Oh, I just wanted to share one more thing about that. I've, in, in, I've had that experience in a lucid dream where it just kind of stops, and then you're just sitting in this gray nothing sort of the dream disappeared and it's like the holodeck yeah exactly the holodeck is turned off but this experience i should share how it happened as i was actually laying in bed breathing very voluntarily really deeply mm -hmm. and i did that long enough where i actually fell asleep while i was doing it yeah but and that was a very uh kind of luminous much more luminous than yeah. the gray of the lucid dream yeah. experience. It was, it was very vibrant, yeah. and uh, a noise woke me up. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what would have happened if it continued. Yeah. I haven't been able to replicate it. Right. I haven't really tried, but mm -hmm. I don't know if it, that's a valid technique for... for oh, it's absolutely valid. Yeah, it's excellent. It's perfectly valid. And maybe I spoke a little bit too generically when I say it's easier to go from a lucid dream to lucid here. People differ. People differ. And so you're certainly not the person, first, first person who has done mindfulness of breathing, which after all is a meditative technique, where you are cultivating all three qualities, and going directly from that, allowing your, your body and mind to fall asleep, and your awareness to remain clear. And then it's not really a surprise that it would be a more luminous experience, because you are actively cultivating all three qualities as you're practicing shamatha. Whereas just hanging out in a lucid dream, you're not really cultivating anything. You are lucid. Mazel tov, you know, mm -hmm. but it's not a meditative practice to go to greater, greater clarity. So different strokes. Yeah. Different folks. I wondered if the 
sort of, I mean, it was deep enough breathing, almost like pranayama type mm -hmm. breathing. I wasn't really practicing mindfulness of breathing. It was more of a pranayama and, technique. And one, uh, it was just deep breathing, really. I wasn't yeah. studying pranayama or anything, but right. I'm wondering if that had something to do with it. It did in that particular case. I just don't teach pranayama. I was trained in it by Iyengar and by another Swami, but I'm just, I don't teach it. Uh, so, but deep, um, among different pranayama techniques, simply deep breathing is certainly the gentlest and the least dangerous. You know, the chance of lousing yourself up that way are pretty small. Um, so that would be, I think, an open question for research. The one I have greatest confidence in is, is the, just the natural breathing of settling the respiration in this natural state because it just seems to be like zero danger. I mean, how can that possibly harm you? And so if anything, less danger. Well, we get a chance every night. So. Yep, we do. We do indeed. So let's make good use of those times. And so I think we, that'll do it for tonight. Yeah, experiment with the great adventure of falling asleep. Let's see what comes up. Good. Good night.